Father in heaven, we are grateful for the opportunity that you give us today to come before you to sing and to return tithes and offerings and to pray. And Lord, now we pray that you would open our eyes to your word. Lord, give us keen discernment, the discernment that is needed at this hour of earth's history. And Father, we are all, I think, sensing our need of deeper understanding of scripture and deeper levels of discernment. Father, the issues of the last days are more subtle than we imagined. And we ask that you would help us to understand what we should be thinking and what we should be doing. Help us to understand what hour we live in as we look into your word this morning. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. It was New Year's Eve, 1905. Former Idaho Governor Frank Stoinenberg opened the gate to enter his property and enjoy a nice evening with his family, his wife, and children. But the moment he opened his gate, something happened that he never would have imagined. A bomb detonated, the blast of which was heard 16 miles away. Can you imagine? Steunenberg, of course, as you might imagine, was killed by the explosion. The man who planted the bomb, whose one of his aliases was Harry Orchard, he was originally born Albert E. Horsley, After some initial resistance, uh, he was, I should say, he was arrested and charged with murder. And after some initial resistance, he confessed to Stoinenberg's murder as well as others. However, he swore that he did not act of his own accord, but was hired by the Western Federation of Miners to assassinate Stoinenberg as payback for his actions against the Miners Union while he had been governor. William Haywood and two other high-ranking leaders in the Western Federation of Miners were subsequently arrested and tried. Haywood's trial in 1907 was one of the first to gain national media attention. It was called the trial of the century. Of course, that term has been applied to other trials since that time, some even in the same century. But Haywood's trial, nonetheless, was the first, or perhaps one of the first, at least, to gain this kind of attention. His legal team included Clarence Darrow of Chicago, who would later figure prominently in a couple of other big media media trials, including one in which he defended a science teacher by the name of John Thomas Scopes in Dayton, Tennessee in 1925. Some of you have heard of that famous Scopes trial, also called the monkey trial. It was definitely uh, some monkey shines happening in that trial, for sure. Newspapers across the country gave daily reports on the progress of the Haywood trial. In the end, Darrow's wily strategy and 11-hour closing argument, just wrap your mind around that, 
was enough to convince the jury to acquit even the likes of Big Bill Haywood. As fascinating as these media trials are, an even bigger trial is underway right now, friends. And the ironic thing is that none of the networks are covering it. You won't read much about it on Facebook or Instagram. If you ask the average person on the street about it, chances are you will get nothing more than a blank stare. I'm talking, of course, about the heavenly judgment that is in progress right now as we live, breathe, and speak. The defense attorney for the accused has never lost a case. Every unfallen being in the universe is intensely focused on this courtroom. It is the talk of the town, so to speak, at least in other places everywhere else except here on earth where it matters the most. You and I are or will be on the witness stand. We learn about this in our scripture reading, which Wayne read a few moments ago. Thank you, Wayne, for reading it so well and clearly. But let's take one more look at it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Now, we will not stay here, as is our custom. Uh, usually, we'll be looking at some other passages today. But I do want to start off with this one. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I'll let that thought sink in for a moment. How many does that include, everyone? All. 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 Does all mean all here? All. Yes. <laughs> all. In fact, Paul is writing this to those that believe, which is quite interesting. Because you go to many churches today, and you will hear nothing about the judgment of believers. And yet Paul writes very clearly and plainly here about it. We, he says, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or what? Or evil or bad. Now, friends, if you knew you were going to stay on trial in an earthly court, let me ask you this question. Would you prepare for the trial or not? Would you hire an attorney? Or would you think yourself capable to go in and stand as your own legal counsel? I think most of us would hire an attorney, wouldn't we? But how many today are preparing for the most auspicious but internally, eternally important judgment scene in human history? How many of us are preparing? Most are completely unaware of their impending day in court. A few others have only a vague idea of the heavenly judgment and its significance. To gain a thorough understanding of these things would take us significant time, more time than we have here this morning. I pray that you will take the time with God to understand these things more fully. But for our purposes here on this Sabbath morning, I want to examine only one significant question relating to the heavenly judgment, and that is, why does God judge? Why? What is the purpose? And to answer the question why, let me suggest two reasons from Scripture. Reason number one, God judges because 
It is his nature and his character to judge. Now that might strike you as a little bit odd because so often we hear from Christian pulpits these days that judging is something that is negative. Judging is something that is unchristlike. After all, didn't Jesus say, judge not lest ye be judged? Right? And they hone in on, people hone in on that one text and without really understanding what Jesus meant by that. Of course, we should not pronounce condemnation upon others. We are not the judge. But does that mean that judgment is a negative thing? Oh, no. God judges because it is his nature to judge. I want to prove that to you uh, just by looking at Genesis chapter 1. So please turn there. It should be easy to find. It's right at the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1. And I want you to notice something here. Genesis chapter 1. I want to read a few verses of this. And I'm going to select them. I'll tell you which ones to follow me on. But we're going to see a very distinct pattern here. Genesis chapter 1. Let's begin with verse 4. And God saw the, what everyone? Light. light and that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God saw the light and that it was good. What kind of a word is good, by the way? It's a word that pertains to judgment, right? If something is good, you juxtapose that with something that is what? Bad or evil. Let's go to verse 10. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was what? Good. Are you picking up the pattern here? Let's look at verse 12. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Are you seeing what I'm seeing? Verse 18. Uh, and to rule over the day and over the night, and to divide the light from the darkness. This is talking about the sun and the moon that he made. And God saw that it was good. Now, the next time, I'm going to ask you to repeat the phrase. Okay, are you ready? Verse 21. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. Are you ready? Here you go. God saw that it was good. Verse 25. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps upon the earth according to its kind. Ready? You can repeat with me. And God saw that it was good. And then verse 31. A little bit different this time, but the same principle. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Now, what do we find there in these verses that we read? We see God judging. We see God judging consistently. We see God judging everything, 
And we see God judging everything of what, uh, what, what was he judging, by the way? All the things that he did. Do you get the impression that it is God's nature to judge and to assess everything that he does? It appears to be so. And so does he judge everything that he sees. Because after all, the key phrase in that uh, all those verses was God saw, God saw, God saw. And you see that uh, also outlined in the major narratives in the book of Genesis from Genesis 1 to Genesis 11, those great narratives, all of them contain this idea of God seeing and judging. So we might gather from this that God always judges. He judges himself. It is part of his character to do this. And why does he do it, you ask? Well, I would ask you this question. Why does he do it in the creation story? You ever thought about that? Let me ask a more practical question. I'm a, you, most of you know what I do for a living here in Pagosa Springs. I'm a builder. Some of you have worked with me. You know that every builder of any account, what does he do when he's finished with something? Huh? You step, Tom, you've, you're, you've built, right? So you step back. And you look at it and you say, does that look right? Is that right? You get out the measuring tape and you say, hmm, is this dimension right? Yes. Okay. Is this dimension right? No. Well, then what do you do? You fix it. <laughs> you make it right. Of course, God didn't have any mistakes that he had to fix, but he still assessed everything he did. Why? Why do we do it as builders? What? Because you're looking for perfection? Why do you want perfection, Stephanie? Why do we want our house to be, uh, you know, why, why did I spend all the time that I've spent on our home that we're building right now? Because I want it to be nice for the people that are going to live in it. Is that, is, does this make sense? So God, because he wanted the best for the occupants of this new world, he looked and assessed and took everything into account. And then when he was done with all that assessment, what did he do, by the way? What follows that last phrase where he says, you know, God saw everything that he had made and it would be, and indeed it was very good. What, what's the next thing that happens in the story? Hmm? Yes, but I'm talking about at the end of the sixth day, after man has already been created, then he blesses and sanctifies the Sabbath, which means that all his work was perfect and he had done the best that he could. Yeah, he sealed it with the seal of perfection. You see how the Sabbath, by the way, is connected with the concept of judgment. It follows this final judgment of the creation of the world. So God judges right and wrong also in our, in our lives and in the church for the same reason. 
Why does God judge in your life and mine? Why does he come to us and say, you know, this thing that you're saying, this, this manner you have of speaking to other people, this is not right. Why does he point out things that are wrong in the church? Does Jesus do that, by the way? You read the Laodicean message. Brian Nichols, our brother from uh, Arizona, was here and shared a powerful message about that a couple of weeks ago. Why does Jesus do that? Because he wants to make us feel bad? He wants to hurt our feelings? He wants us to go into some deep depression? No. He does it because he wants what's best for us. And when he sees something in our character that is going to hurt us and hurt others, what does he do? He points it out. He tells us the truth in his word. Not to hurt our feelings, but because, as the case with any good father, he wants us to be the best that we can be. So this is one reason why God judges, because it is his nature to do so. But there is also another reason. He judges because there is a great controversy in progress. In Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, we find this account of a rebellious angel who decided that he would spread some propaganda about God. I want to look at those two chapters just briefly. And I know we uh, are going to be careful and watchful of our time because if you read the testimonies, you will find there is an ideal length of a sermon. Did everyone, has everyone read that? Raise your hand if you've read that, okay? <laughs> a few of you have read the ideal length of the sermon. You know how, anybody know what it is, by the way? She says, a little beyond, not much beyond the half hour. Okay, just making sure you know that I'm aware of that. So Isaiah 14, and we'll look at verses 12 through 14. The prophet says, How you were fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning! How you were cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations! For you have said in your heart, here you go, here, here's the, the inner thoughts of this rebel. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. This is what Lucifer, the fallen angel, said as he was in the process of falling from his position. He had this plan that he would replace God on the throne, that he would be the new governor of the universe, the new premier, the new president. And we get a few more details in the 28th cap chapter of, of Ezekiel, so I hope you'll follow me there as well. Ezekiel chapter 28. Let's begin with verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, 
Thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up and you say, I am a God, I sit in the seat of gods in the midst of the seas. Yet you are a man and not a God, though you set your heart as the heart of a God. So we start out here talking to the prince of Tyre, but earthly rulers fashion themselves often as gods and they ask to receive worship. And so therefore, they are acting out the impulses of that fallen rebellious angel who really stands behind their efforts to draw people away from the true God. Now, if you go down a little bit in the narrative, there is this song, this lamentation that is taken up against the Prince of Tyre. But as you read it, you can see that it's not merely against a man, it's against the enemy of our souls, the devil himself. Down in verse 12. Son of man, the Lord says, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. Let's stop for a moment there and see that this cannot possibly be talking to a mere man. The prince of Tyre was not in Eden, the garden of God. And it's in this case, it is not talking about the Eden that was here on earth, which is a replica of the Garden of Eden that is in heaven, but rather it is speaking of the heavenly area itself. Because it speaks of the devil before his fall being in Eden, and he was not cast down to earth until after his fall. So this is happening, this is a scene that's taking place in heaven. This glorious garden of God. Let's continue. Verse 14. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. That sea of glass mingled with fire. He had full reign of that uh, domain. Verse 15 says, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till what? Till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of of the fiery stones. Now, I want to notice this uh, verse 16. By the abundance of your trading, and you're saying to yourself, huh, what does that mean? What was Lucifer in heaven trading? Marbles? Hot wheels? No. He was trading, he was trafficking in ideas. What kind of ideas was he trafficking in? He was trafficking in false propaganda. He was peddling. We often say this, don't we? Still today. 
peddling one's ideas, selling it, marketing it, making it sound reasonable and desirable to believe the things that he was saying about God, making doubt fashionable among the angels. Think about that. This is the abundance of his trading and trafficking that eventually got him kicked out of heaven. But notice what the effect of that was in verse 16. By the abundance of your trading, what happened? What did he become filled with? Violence. Violence. Friends, let me share with you this point. Let us never think that our words have no impact on our own minds. The more the devil, or I should say the more, because he was still yet unfallen, but dangerous in his ways, the more he trafficked in these ideas, the more he spoke out his doubts and his uh, feelings about God, the more he became filled with violence within. It strengthened his ideas. It strengthened his resolve that he was going to replace God one way or another. Does this make sense to everyone? So with all of this in mind, with all of these suggestions and doubts and insinuations taking place in heaven, there was this rift that developed. Some of the angels said, Lucifer, you're right. God is an oppressor. We are the oppressed. We, meet, we need equity, diversity, and inclusion here in heaven. Those who have ears, let them hear. And others of the angel, the majority, <clears throat> said, no, Lucifer, I don't believe what you're saying about God. I've seen too much of his loving character. I have watched the Son of God and how he has behaved. What you're saying does not make sense. And I don't believe it. And of course, what do you think happened in heaven as all that was going on? I mean, come on, picture yourself there. Picture yourself hearing the conversations that went back and forth among the angels behind whatever doors angels close. I don't know what they do, but how they manage all that. But think about what might have been said. Do you think that the angels that sided with the, who, he who ultimately became the devil, do you think that they uh, were tolerant of their brethren who refused to go along with their ways? Do you think that they said, well, you know, I guess that's fine if you want to believe that. If you want to believe God is good, you know, hey, it's, you know, it's free. Heaven's a free place. You're welcome to do that, I guess. Hey, we can still be friends. We can still be buds. We can still hang out. Do you think that's what was said? Oh, no. Mm -mm. No, rather the angels that eventually fell said to their other loyal angels, you guys, you guys are nothing but uh, God supremacists. 
You want, you want this oppressor to rule over you. you are, you're nothing but a sap. You're a sucker. Come on, he's taking advantage of us. You can't see that? They maybe even were threatened with cancellation. You know, the people that are uh, canceling other people in our society today, here's just a side point, okay? People that are participating in this cancel culture, are they majority or a minority? Minority. But you know, minorities can have a lot of power. And they can make themselves appear as though they have more power than they actually do. And so here you have that situation in heaven. There was this illusion that all the cool people, all the important, I should say, angels, were on the side of the rebellion. And that if you weren't on the side of the rebellion, you were some sort of idiot. God allowed it to continue for a time. But then he says in verse 16, Therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. So there came a time when God confronted the rebellion. He brought the conspirators uh, to account, and he said, Gentlemen, you need to leave. And I'm going to escort you out of heaven. You will have a place prepared for you. You can work out your system of government however you desire. But you must leave us alone. And so Lucifer and his followers were exiled to planet Earth. And of course, they didn't stop there. They did not stop. Because in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, we see a little bit of how perhaps things were conducted in heaven. Turn there with me, would you? Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, what do we find here, friends? This short passage shows us how Satan seeks to undermine God's government, how he undermined it in heaven, and how he undermined it in the human realm. He sought to make, first, Eve question what God had said, right? Has God indeed said? So he sought to cast doubt on her interpretation of what God had said. Then he doesn't stop there. He went a step further to try to get her to doubt the truthfulness of what God had said. Because he follows up, has God indeed said, with, you will not surely die. So this is, this is going a step beyond. 
he's, he's asking her not only to question her interpretation of God's words, but then he goes to flatly contradict what God said and said that God is telling you a lie. He's lying to you. You won't die. But then he goes even further than that to try to get her to doubt God's character of love by portraying him as restricting her liberty. God knows that in the day you eat of it, you will be like God's and you will know good and evil. God is withholding something from you. He's lying to you because he does not want to, you to have this freedom. He portrayed God as a dictator, a tyrant, an oppressor. Now, what's the real truth here, friends? Who's really the tyrant in the universe? Is it God? No. I've said this before. I said it a few weeks ago, but I'm going to say it again, and I'm going to keep on saying it. The law of liberty, the Ten Commandments, which is a transcript of the character of God, is all about protecting the rights and freedoms of others. Is this true? God, God's kingdom is based upon freedom and liberty. It is Satan's kingdom that proposes to give us liberty, offers us liberty, says you will have all kinds of freedom. But the reality is he is an oppressor. He is a tyrant. He does not want and does not offer us true liberty or freedom but rather tyranny and oppression. If you want to know in one word what the great controversy is all about, it is all about liberty. That's why we shouldn't be shocked or amazed at the developments that we see happening in our world today. The fact that liberty is being taken away on many fronts is really uh, the evidence to me that the Holy Spirit is being withdrawn from the earth. Because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, the Scripture says. By the way, you might ask yourself, why do we come to church here and listen to a sermon every Sabbath? What possible benefit could there be from that? Well, I would ask you to consider it in light of Genesis 3. All it took for the world to be plunged into ruin was one sermon from the devil. Is that true? Do you think that listening to the word of God instead of the devil's voice might have some role in liberating the world from his, the devil's tyranny? I think it does. Yeah. Ideas have consequences. They have power. And if our minds are filled with the wrong ideas, we're going to be headed in the wrong direction. We're going to become oppressors ourselves, just like the devil was and is. If our minds are filled with the word of God, we, are be, we will be champions of liberty and freedom just as God is himself. Now, because of this great controversy that is taking place all around us, the climax of which we are soon to witness here in this world, 
We are looking at this judgment hour, and it is in session because there is this great controversy. When Lucifer and his followers were kicked out of heaven, do you think that there were questions that still remained in the minds of some of the angels? Yes. Yes, yes there, there were questions. And the, here's, here's the issue. Was it wrong for the angels to ask those questions of God? No. They had honest questions. They wanted to know what happened. And so in the judgment, God answers those questions. But he also judges, I'll get to that in a moment actually, but he, he judges in the great controversy because his people are being oppressed. They are victims of tyranny. And I would point out that oppression always involves a perversion of true justice and a deprivation of liberty. No wonder the writers of the Psalms cry out so consistently for God to judge them. I'll I'll just read a couple passages here quickly. Psalm 7, verse 8. The Lord shall judge his people. Shall judge the peoples, I should say. And then the psalmist says, judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. Psalm 26, verse 1. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. Psalm 35, verse 24. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Psalm 43, verse 1. This one is a psalm. Judge me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. I've sung that song before. It's a beautiful and powerful song. Psalm 54, verse 1. Save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your strength. And then in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. That inaudible plea of the slain people of God through the ages whose remains are under the altar on which they were killed, the earth... And what is the message we hear from the souls? How long, O Lord, until you judge? Listening to all that, I want to ask you a question. Does the scripture view judgment in a negative light or a positive light? A very positive. And God's people, God's true people, always want God to judge. They want him to judge them. And they want him to judge those who are oppressing them. God will not allow his people to be misjudged and oppressed forever, friends. The final judgment is something to which every believer should look forward. To be finally vindicated by the judge of the universe will be a relief, the likes of which we can barely even now comprehend. Would you agree with me? But let's get to that second thing of answering the questions of the angels. The angels must have asked themselves when Lucifer was kicked out, who's right, God or Satan? It is natural to have these questions. During my time as dean at Weimar now, Weimar University, Weimar College back then, these questions came up from time to time over decisions that we had to make regarding students. There were some disciplinary matters that we had to deal with there. 
And I can tell you that patience and discretion is required on the part of administration in those situations. You can't tell a group of students only, trust me, <laughs> right? Because perhaps the student that had to experience the disciplinary action might be telling a different story about the situation. And so you had to be consistent. Your character, your actions, the way you treated everybody had to be consistent. In like manner, God has patiently demonstrated to the heavenly beings why his principles of government are the only way to ensure peace and happiness in the universe. The cross of Christ brought final resolution to the question over who was right in the great controversy. All heaven saw clearly what Satan would have done to Christ in heaven had he had the power to do it. But now, a different cluster of questions needs to be answered after the cross. Questions such as these. What will it take to bring earth back into harmony with heaven? Must it be remade or can it be reformed? Right? If you were an angel, wouldn't you ask that question? I mean, can't we just have a little reform down here on earth that we have to completely obliterate and start over? It's a good question. God, the angels might have said, does your plan of redemption have the power to make those who have once participated in the rebellion into loyal, freedom-loving citizens of heaven again? Do you think that the angels might be asking that question? Is this really going to work, God? I mean, we see that you're right. There's no doubt about that. Their question is, what about those people? Having participated in the rebellion, is it going to be safe to bring them back here? Would they not start the same thing here that they were involved in there? These are the questions that are being addressed in the final judgment, friends. And we have the assurance from God that the questions will be answered clearly and correctly. Genesis 18:25 Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? This was the question that was asked concerning God's uh, judgment back in the ancient times. And what's the answer to that question, friends? I didn't hear you, sorry. Is the, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Yes, he will do right. We have this assurance. So should we be, should we be fearful of the judgment or should we, we, should we be looking forward to it? How many of you want to say, I'm looking forward to the judgment, Lord? Amen. Now that might mean that there is going to be some personal judgment that Jesus uh, undertakes in your life. He may come to you and likely will come to you and to me and say, this in your life is not something that, I, that you really want there if you're a freedom lover. This in your life is not something that you really want there if you want to deal with sin, honestly. If you want to be able to enjoy the new heaven and the new earth in which righteousness, read, liberty and freedom dwells. Because after all, what is true liberty and freedom? Is, is it just liberty for me but not for thee? Right? No, it's liberty for all. 
And it is us going out of our way, sacrificing ourselves for the liberty and freedom of others. So Jesus is going to come to each of us and make his still small voice heard to deal with the sin that remains in us and to say for us to say that we look forward to the judgment of God means that we look forward to sin being removed from our lives as well. So the question then comes down to this. Are we preparing to face our day in court? A few, year, a few years ago, a certain man was investigated and then accused of committing a white-collar felony crime. Agents representing the federal government questioned him. And, like any uh, situation should be, he had his company attorney on the phone for the interview. The saddest part of that story is that the company attorney ultimately refused to represent this man in, in the case. Why, you ask? The answer is simple. Evidently, in the interview, this man demonstrated an unfortunate lack of transparency. He answered certain questions that the investigators asked that they already knew the answers to in a fraudulent way. He wasn't totally upfront. And so the attorney, disgusted by this breach of integrity, told the gentleman that he needed to find another attorney to represent him. So he did. And had to pay a huge retainer, by the way. Friends, all of us must testify in this heavenly trial. And we have the best defense attorney in the universe on retainer to defend us. What was the price of that retainer, by the way? It was his own life. His own life sacrificed on the cross of Calvary. But he cannot and will not take up our case <clears throat> if we are not upfront and honest with him now. So, the question comes down to, are we holding regular meetings with our defense attorney? Are we talking with him in prayer? Are we reading the history of the other cases that he has won? Are we confessing our sins to him and asking for his forgiveness? Are we seeking for his righteousness to be manifested in our lives? Or are we trying to hide our sins from him instead of being open and honest? Is your plea not guilty, friends, when you know the opposite to be true? It is time for us, each of us, to decide today that we will come clean with Jesus. Amen. It's simple. It's not complicated. All that we need to do is simply go to him, get on our knees, or whatever position in prayer is comfortable for you, while still respecting who he is and ask him to represent us. And more than that, ask him for forgiveness and ask him also to work out his righteousness in us. It is that simple. 
If we sincerely ask for those things, do you think that he will turn us away? No, No, not for a moment. In fact, there is a precious promise in the Gospel of John. The one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Let's take that promise to heart today, friends. Go to your defense attorney and tell him, I want you to represent me. That's the prayer we should have today, and I pray that we will have today and every day in Christ's name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org dot audioverse dot org.